This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Sincere apologies for the total absence of an episode last week. No excuses really other than my usual disorganisation, shall we say, and my inability to get the right files to my editor on time. So apologies for that. I hope you didn't miss it too much. Before we dive into today's episode, just a little shout out. Some of you, if you're following me on social media, might have seen I've been doing a whole host of crap-free Christmas posts uh, since the beginning of November with a crap-free Christmas A to Z, working our way through from advent calendars all the way through to, I don't know, still not quite sure what Z is going to be yet. If you have any suggestions, please do get in touch. Uh, we're up to P at the moment, I think, but I've been uh, sharing lots of different ideas and suggestions and tips for a Christmas with less waste, less stress hopefully uh, and ideally less money as well especially at the moment with things being very tight for lots of people and I've collated all of the crap free Christmas ideas and a whole host more into a crap free Christmas course which is uh, online self-paced so you can dip in and out at, uh, whenever it suits you there's loads of links in there to ethical and sustainable alternatives for everything from aforementioned advent calendars to crackers to cracker hats to wrapping paper all kinds of different things so it's all there to help you out in one place it's just 10 pounds i've tried to keep it as accessible and as affordable as possible so if anybody thinks that that sounds like it would be something helpful then I will pop the link to that in the show notes, which as ever you can find at asustainablelife.co.uk forward slash podcast. Okay, so on with today's show. This episode is going out actually on Black Friday, but also in the week after COP27. So what happened? What didn't happen? And why? So for those of us in the UK, COP26 last year in Glasgow was a big deal. It was everywhere in the media. It was amazing to see the climate making headlines every day for at least a two week period. And schools and businesses and organisations were all really keen to get involved. But this year's COP... COP27 has felt very different and I found myself really struggling to sort of follow what was going on and then to get a handle this week on any outcomes. 
So I was so delighted that the brilliant Laura Young agreed to make some time for us to come in and to fill us in on what happened at COP26, uh, COP27. Sorry, um, She was actually there. Now, you might remember that Laura came on last year to do us a beginner's guide to COP, to COP26, um, and a great explainer of what these things are, how it all works, all that kind of thing, um, and then came on after COP26 last year with a debrief. Laura is so great at explaining things in a really easy, understandable way, and it is always such a joy to chat to her. So it was really fabulous to chat to her, to hear about her experiences at COP27, to hear about her thoughts, and to hear what actually went on and what happened. There is so much to take away from this episode. I personally feel so much more informed after chatting to Laura, and I really hope that you do too. And please listen out for Laura's amazing call to action at the end. She talks about the importance of making our voices heard in our local communities, not just about the stuff that we don't want to be happening, so things like fracking, but really importantly to make our voices heard around the stuff that we do want to see happening. So things like cycle lanes and onshore wind. So have a little think while you're listening to this, what positive climate stuff has happened near to you or maybe is in the pipeline and who can you contact to let them know that they have your support. So enjoy this episode. I absolutely loved it. As I said, it's always an absolute joy to chat to Laura. Please do check out all the links I've put in the show notes. There's the links in there for the episodes that she did with us uh, last year. And do let me know what you think of this episode. Come tag me on social media. I'm at Sustainable-ish. If you've enjoyed it, please do leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast. It means that it makes it easier for other people to find it as well. Enjoy. Hello, Laura. Welcome back. I think you're our first ever person making a third appearance. I love it. (laughs) Oh, thanks for having me on. No, it's such a pleasure. And thank you so much for fitting us in. You've been so busy and you're just, when did you get back from COP27 then? At some point on Sunday, I think. So all kind of finished early hours in the morning, Egypt time. And then I was literally straight home. Um, So I've been back in the UK for this week, sort of getting my bearings together. Amazing. Um, So for anyone who didn't hear last year, Laura did very kindly came on, I think, before COP26 last year and did a beginner's guide to COP for us. So and and then you came on afterwards and sort of filled us in. And I I sent you a message on on Twitter going, oh, is there any chance you could give us a little update on COP27? Um, So for those who might not have listened to that first episode, what is COP? Sure. So COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and it's when the United Nations gathers country representatives together to discuss different issues. This one is, of course, COP27. So it's the 27th time these parties, these countries have come together to talk about climate change. That's what's on the agenda. And logistically, it's a two week conference and it moves around every single year. Last year, we had Glasgow in Scotland. This year, it was Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. And we have lots of things on the agenda. We have the first two days or when the world leaders come in and we kind of talk about high level big things and then we go into different days so energy day finance day gender day nature day water day and and kind of a lot of discussions around those subtopics within the the big climate movement and across the two weeks what happens is a a draft document and an agreement is created and then the countries negotiate it down draft and redraft and change it until there's finally something 
at the end where countries can say, yep, we're going to sign on to this. And it commits countries to legally binding uh, scenarios, whether that's about finance for climate, whether it's about warming targets, whether it's about reducing X, Y or Z. And so that's what it looks like. Um, It's basically a huge conference. There's between 35 and 40,000 people that come along. And that's a mixture of country delegates, press, observers, charity workers, all that kind of stuff, academics. So it's a big jamboree of people, a big, you know, pavilions of events and, and stands and stalls. But also there's really important these negotiations happening in the back room, which all countries are represented um, at the same table and, and get to have their say when it comes to the agreement at the end. Amazing. So I don't think I'd really heard much about COPs until last year when it was like obviously people talk about the Paris Agreement so people might be familiar with that that came out of COP in um, 2015 I think didn't it yeah and that was where um, countries came together for the first time to agree we need to take action and to limit global warming I think the phrasing is something like well below two ideally below one and a half degrees and that was legally binding so we hear about that talked about a lot but then I don't remember hearing much about it but then last year for those of us in the UK was a big deal wasn't it like it felt like it was just everywhere it was not all the mainstream media like it was headline news for two weeks it was amazing we had schools taking part in stuff we had businesses really wanting to step up and get involved and um was that the first cop that you'd been to yeah so last year was the first one I'd been to and I was actually at university when the Paris agreement happened and that was a huge deal because it actually changed what we were learning. You know, it was wow. a, a real pivotal thing. I did environmental science, so it, it really changed this trajectory. I think one thing to recognise, though, is, you know, each time these come together, there's a different focus, there's maybe a different mm. aim, and some of them, in air quotes, are more important than others. Of course, they're all really important, but, you know, COP21, which was the 2015 Paris Agreement one, was a huge one because countries knew that they had to come together to to deliver this. But it was also a five year plan. It was something that they said in five years, we need to also come back and, you know, recommit and bring new plans. Countries need to bring new climate action plans to the table. And so in between those five years, it doesn't mean that the cops weren't important. It just means they were also aware that, you know, some of the bigger stuff was to happen in a few years time. That bigger one, so the five years time one would have landed if you knew the mass in 2020. But of course, COVID, so it was 2021 which was COP26 in Glasgow. So I think it was two reasons it was really big. Number one is because actually it was a really big one. It was the five-year-ish mark from the Paris Agreement and countries had to bring these big new commitments. But then, of course, it was on our doorstep. So, I mean, and being from Glasgow, literally couldn't get away from it. I saw them setting up the signs and, you know, putting in the new bus routes and all sorts. So I think there is a bit of it being on your land, wanting to get things right at home, but then also realising that it was quite a momentous one as well to to kind of focus on what has been the five year or six year progress since that mm. Paris Agreement. And then you said, so as you said, this this year, um, COP27 happened in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. So um, obviously happening in Africa, happening in the developing world rather than in, uh, you know, an affluent developed country like the UK. Lots of before we get into the nitty gritty of kind of what happened or what didn't happen, quite a lot of I don't know if it's a lot, but I hear voices saying about cops that the process itself is unsustainable in terms of flying people in from all over the world. I kind of feel I I understand that, but I feel like when you're doing something like that, that really high level diplomacy, 
you need people in the room and a lot of the probably the conversations and the um the important things that happen happen in the tea breaks and the conversations yeah. you know behind the scenes and all that sort of thing what's your thought on that the carbon impact of it versus yeah. the greater impact I guess yeah I mean I mean firstly the the offsetting that the decisions make is massive compared to you know all the flights and things that get there obviously it's not perfect I'm sure there's people that were there that probably didn't have to be and I'm sure that we could be reducing it but actually I think it's really important and I think there's a few points you know to pick up on what you said exactly that there's something just about being in person hearing people's stories in person having all the time there you know being able to have those discussions and and really read the room when it comes to these things as well is so important doesn't mean that everything has to be face to face but actually this kind of thing does there's also a logistical question which is it's a global summit what times do you put negotiations yes. someone's going to be waking up in the middle of the night to discuss something really vital what if the wi-fi drops out what if it's just not possible and and you've kind of got to keep that in mind I think there's also a risk that when things go online, things go out of the room. It's not as transparent. We aren't able to see as much. And so, you know, there could be this risk that there's backroom conversations happening that we aren't even aware of. At least if everyone's here, you're like, oh, they've gone in there. That must be something happening. You know, and there there was even kind of things about at this COP, the US and China had an informal discussion. And you're like, that probably wouldn't have been set up online, you know, and, and just kind of trying to take that into consideration. So I think there's a whole host of reasons that it's, you know, it's definitely not perfect, but it is what we have to have to work on and have to work with. Mm. Um, And I think it's one of those things where I think on balance, it's good, but we know it's not all that we need to do, but, but it is a really important thing. And when you look, especially over the trajectory of five, 10 or 15 years, the change in trajectory of where we're going is drastically different because of these doesn't mean the world's not been warming doesn't mean there isn't still bad stuff going on but actually we are changing the trajectories of how far we are going to warm the planet and we just need to keep doing that more and more that's really interesting because I'm sure you've probably seen seen the graph yeah and I can post it in the show notes there's a graph that's like the 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 warming stripes where we've going from blue to red and it's sort of against a um on the y-axis I think there's carbon dioxide yeah. levels continually going up and there's um temperature going up and they've sort of marked when these uh global conferences have happened and sort of obviously saying look you know despite all these conferences and all this talk n- nothing has been done to yeah. lower emissions um but so really interesting what you're saying in terms of they have been really valuable in the last 10-15 years in changing that trajectory I guess it's that kind of um when you're sailing a a, sh- a big ship like you make a sm- you know well actually I guess we're making a, a an adjustment here but when we when we yeah. get to where we need to go that's hopefully quite a big adjustment that I know sense? and I think as well like this doesn't exist because it's a hypothetical but what would that graph look like if we didn't have those conferences yes. and that's a hard question to ask because it's you know I'm sort of playing my top card and it doesn't exist you know I can't mm. prove it but I think it's important to say that you know without them we'd probably be a lot worse off and I mean that graph shows that we need to do better but it also shows how vital these moments are to at least recenter, refocus and put back on the agenda climate for these two weeks and then hopefully these countries can take that back to their home context and think about how to continue that on so cop 27 you said that last last year at cop 26 one of the reasons it was it was so 
hyped is the wrong word for it. So I guess um, yeah. sort of prevalent over here was because it was in the UK, but also it was it was revisiting these uh, agreements that had been made at Paris. And am I right in saying that one of the outcomes of Glasgow was that instead of coming back every five years to revisit these pledges, countries would now come back every year and to sort of speed up this ratcheting mechanism they talk about. Is is that right? Yeah, I mean, one of the frustrations about this year is there was just countries who didn't submit new plans, updated plans. And although this is legally binding... I don't know what the consequence is. I know, I was thinking that. We keep saying, oh, Paris is so historic because it's it's legally binding. Well, what happens? Does the UK get put in jail if it doesn't meet it? I don't Exactly. And although the US is back at the table, they also left, you know, they left Mm. an agreement. And so I think in one way, we kind of have to hold it lightly in the sense that, you know, there isn't going to be these crushing consequences that happen. But this year, this COP, the focus was implementation not very catchy and they were like this is the cop for implementation and you're like what is that but I I think ultimately what this one was for is getting down to how we're going to implement a lot of the stuff that has been agreed on and it's because you can make these big statements sweeping statements about finance carbon reduction whatever it might be but actually what does that look like in reality and how do we put that into practice and so this one was a little bit different in some of the stuff we were talking about but I also think it was different because there was just less coming to the table there was lots of world leaders in the first two days coming and giving their speeches and you're sort of listening going I knew that already and you're going back you're going to COP27 YouTube you know what was x y and z saying and going they said that last they literally (laughs) said that last year you know you're kind of like double taking and so I think that was also a reason why it wasn't as big because no country was making a big fuss of it because no country had anything, you know, substantial to bring to the table. And I think, you know, I'm almost thinking now in retrospect, why did Rishi Sunak probably not want to come? Well, he didn't really say anything. So he probably knew that his team probably knew that. And, And that's kind of the hard reality is, you know, lots of world leaders came with with empty hands. But then what he did say from what I heard, was completely counter to the policies that he's putting in place here in the UK in terms of investment in renewables and all that. And I was like, hold on a minute. Exactly. And I think we forget, you know, and and also in the two weeks of COP, we also had the autumn budget back in the UK. And Jeremy Hunt said that we were a climate leader. And I thought, we were literally just talking about fracking like two months ago. (laughs) Are we like, is that just not, are we forgetting that that's a thing? You know, yeah. And and I think it's hard because I think with all of this, you have to cut through the speeches, Mm. get to the stats that they're talking about, find out if they're new, find out if it's a new policy. And ultimately, that's not what it is. You know, Rishi Sunak came back with reaffirming that they're going to commit to what they'd already committed. Okay, Mm. thanks for not backtracking. And then discussing in detail finance that had already been pledged. And talking about tripling finance, but by tripling, he meant tripling the ratio. There's no new money. They're just divvying it up differently. And so, you know, it's hard because on the face of it, you can be like, oh, that that actually sounds all right. Oh, okay. But as soon as you dig into it, you know, there's there's no surface um, for it to stand on. So that's quite interesting that this year was implementation and because I was sort of you know, sat there trying to follow it and being like, well, what's happened? Nothing's happened. Last year, we had all these big announcements and it felt, you know, obviously it never feels like it's enough, but it felt like progress was being made. But that point that you've just said about 
it's really easy to make big promises and big pledges or it's relatively easy I can tell you all I'm going to run a marathon in six months but actually unless I do the implementation and get off the sofa and stop eating so much chocolate it's not going to happen and so this year was that kind of where's my trainers what's my training plan going to be who am I going to buddy up with all that kind of thing Exactly. And so it, it did feel different, it, you know, the kind of discussions. But I think ultimately, I'm the same as you, you know, because there wasn't as much UK media necessarily there on the ground. I had a few different gigs while I was out there. And a lot of the time, if anyone's ever done something on the radio, for example, they do this weird pre-interview phone call where they're like what will you say or would yes. you say if you come on? So it was funny because I was having all of these calls with researchers going, oh, there's really not been anything that's happened today. And I'm really trying to push for them to talk about COP. And then they give me a slot and I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> what, are, what are we going to talk about? And and I found myself talking about the conference centre and talking about the sandwiches and talking about <laughs> the area. And you're like, this, this shows that there is nothing. And I think partly the other, I guess, thing that's that's going on all the time in the background of all of this is, the last 12 months has seen a global move away from climate action to focus on how are we going to get the gas that our country relies on when our supplies from Russia Mm. have been stopped. COVID is obviously still a thing. How are we going to tackle the cost of living crisis? And even though to anyone who is kind of involved in this sector or you know, people who do your carbon literacy or whatever it might be, you know, they might be thinking, well, of course, I know they're linked. I know that cost of living is linked to the climate change that's linked to the Russia-Ukraine war. But for some reason, politicians like to work in silo and like to be distracted. And so I also think there was lots of people not bringing stuff to the table because they've had so much on at home, which Mm. is so deflating because climate change happens all over the place. And just because it might not be right on your doorstep doesn't mean it's not something we should all you know, act on and and do. Um, But that is obviously another backdrop. And then the UK obviously has had 15,000 prime ministers. So goodness knows like how how we got anything in as well. So, I mean, I guess we can all to a certain extent relate to that, can't we? That so many of us want to do something, but we're tackling fires on a day-to-day basis in terms of getting the kids out the door to school, making sure everybody's fed, struggling with the cost of living, all those sorts of things. And, and then, you know the way our governments are set up don't really facilitate this sort of long-term thinking that's needed for climate action do they because they're they're thinking okay right got to address the cost of living crisis got to address covid got to i they don't want to be seen to be pushing through policies that are going to cost people more money or maybe be unpopular but that ultimately are going to be really good in 2050 because that doesn't really help them in their job and their career now so it's so difficult but that's not to let them off the hook No, I know. And I think partly, you know, the job of now that we're back home and and kind of focusing on what we can do as the UK, you know, I think it is now time to, you know, push our MPs, our councillors, you know, our representatives to be innovative with what they're doing and to say, you know, actually something that would really help me with my heating is getting insulation and double glazing that's affordable. Can you help me out with that? Mm. You know, I don't want to just have a warm house. I want to have an efficient house. And, you know, I think being more innovative with our public transport, like I know there's so much going on with the kind of like the staffing of of these sectors, but actually, you know, we've seen Germany doing their nine euro a month ticket. Like that's an innovative thing that we could try and and see how it goes. And in Scotland, we've had under 22s getting free bus travel and it's been amazing. And you think, you know, actually, how could we 
just think outside the box with solutions to both of these things that are cheaper but also things that bring a climate solution for the long term and Mm. that is popular you know it's popular and and we'll get those you know elected representatives put back in positions because they're doing the right thing and I just wish we had more joined up thinking and innovation when Mm. it comes to our climate action. Yeah definitely so loss and damage was a big theme uh, for COP27 or there was a lot of hope around um, uh, loss and damage we hear that phrase but we might not know what it means can you just explain yeah. It to us? yeah so it's kind of easy. I like to describe it w- alongside the other climate finance that we have so there's there's three types of climate finance there's mitigation adaptation and loss and damage and loss and damage sort of sits on its own and mitigation and adaptation sort of get lumped together but there's three very different types and the way I describe it is it's a simple before during and after so mitigation is money going towards climate vulnerable countries to say how can we mitigate climate change how can we look at what is on the horizon what we're at risk of and how can we maybe work our way out of it and and try and say if we put these things in place it might stop any climate impacts coming in whether it's flooding drought whatever it might be so that might be would that be like as in the UK not opening a new oil field does that count as mitigation or would it be helping them to develop flood defenses or does that become adaptation yeah I think it's probably more towards the second I think it's more looking at the kind of infrastructure that you can build but of course thinking about how they can move towards a more sustainable future is a massive part of that so that might be thinking about okay this region in whatever country you want to pick doesn't have access to energy it would be saying well let's look at the best clean way that we can get energy there and that would be mitigating fuels and go straight to renewables exactly Mm -hmm. and I think that sort of helps with this idea of like we sitting here have built up our industries on fossil fuels so Mm -hmm. you know we can't be hypocrites and tell them they're not allowed to unless we support them not to and so I think that's the key so mitigation is kind of like all the before it's like the before the climate comes it's before they make the the mistakes that we've made Mm. but in a really supportive way adaptation is almost like the during it's kind of like how do we adapt to what we are seeing a lot of that you know when it comes to flooding sea level rise drought you know how can we adapt to all of the situations that are happening and and make sure that that infrastructure can be put in so those two bits of climate finance get kind of put together when we talk about you might have heard of this 100 billion dollars that was pledged every year which hasn't been committed but that all kind of sits within that realm so this is richer nations have pledged a billion dollars a year for poorer nations for mitigation. Hundred billion, a hundred billion a year. Yeah. So that and was when did they when did they pledge that? Two thousand and nine. And has it ever happened? No. So it was supposed to be up until twenty twenty was when they would like definitely hit the hundred billion a year, but it was supposed to be a regular thing. And last this year it was eighty three is what we got up to. And there was some interesting analysis from The Guardian who looked at like who wasn't paying their fair share and like the US and the UK are kind of coming out top. So like well, that, as, in, as in we're not paying our fair share. We're not paying our fair share. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's the kind of climate finance that that already has a number, already has a target, already has kind of they've not quite worked out exactly how it's all going to work. But but that's the kind of general mitigation adaptation money. Loss and damage is the after it's 
country, a community, an individual has experienced climate change and has lost something or has had serious damage. And that's not just like houses swept away by a flood or drought means their farm is no longer viable. It can also be loss of life. It can be loss of culture. You know, when you think about people, refugees, climate refugees. So it's like loss and damage from from climate change. And that money isn't to then suddenly build a flood wall, because if your house is gone, you don't need a flood wall, you need a new house. Um, mm-hmm. And so ultimately, it's money that is going towards rebuilding communities. And I guess, associated with the loss that you almost can't really add money to, but actually, it's, it's about recognising that. And so it's kind of like saying, you know, Pakistan, I'm sure has a number attached to what it would cost to make relevant areas, you know, less flood flood prone. But because of the floods that we've seen this year, they know that it's about 50 billions worth of just damage, just loss and damage. And so they need money just to actually figure out the, the stuff that's already gone. And so that's the slight difference. Loss and damage hasn't had all rich nations pledged towards it. We've had Scotland was the first last year to commit money to it. They did it again this year. So they've pledged about seven million pounds and that's absolutely nowhere near enough, but it's a good starting place. And then we've had other countries kind of trickle in. The frustrating thing is a lot of the other countries have given money that was moved from other places. So money from that first climate finance has maybe been moved over, um, which is still good because it's still money that's at least staying within the realm of climate finance, but it's obviously not new money and it's Mm. being taken away. So, I mean, that is the frustration, but there's always been a bit of, difficulty around loss and damage because a lot of rich nations when thinking about the other types of climate finance so thinking about mitigation and adaptation rich countries love the idea of giving out loans for potentially you know getting investment back I mean loss and damage is not something that there's a return on investment of it's about saying guess what this situation you're in is absolutely devastating. And we, as rich nations who have the world's wealth and have emitted so much in the past, like we want to recognise that and 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 give financially. And, well, and basically these, because... these are the countries that have contributed to it yeah. historically and are currently, and yeah. therefore need to bear some responsibility or the responsibility for that. Yeah, exactly. So this was the first year that it was on on the agenda? Yeah, first year it was on the agenda and we did end up getting it in the final agreement. So what has been set up now that Sharm El Sheikh is finished is the loss and damage fund. So this is almost like the mechanism. It's the facility of how this money is going to appear and and what it's going to look like and how it's going to operate. The nitty gritty obviously hasn't been kind of signed off and worked out and the money isn't necessarily all there yet but it's good to recognize that this is now put in writing that rich nations have a responsibility to be giving climate finance in the way of loss and damage and that is now something that is in the writing and that is going to be built upon because these agreements get built upon so even though you know it might be watered down or it might not quite be strong enough in the first iteration over the next few years it will get stronger and stronger But of course, the pinch of salt in all of this is we've had big climate finance pledges before that haven't surfaced. And so we need to make sure that we are holding countries accountable who have pledged money to actually give it and make sure that the mechanism works for those climate vulnerable countries, not for the rich nations who are giving it over. Mm. So we had loss and damage come out and that felt like a 
partial tick, do you know, in terms of something to announce, something to talk about. What else? You said that it was really hard when you're doing all these all these radio pieces. But even if we're talking about implementation, so maybe there weren't any new policy, new pledges, sorry, announced. But were was there? Did you did implementation some implementation happen or not really? Yeah, I mean, there was other kind of small wins. I guess a big thing was there was a lot more in the text about youth and young people and the role of their I guess participation for the first time ever they had a pavilion and that was crucial but also we are seeing this idea that young people do need to be brought into the official text and negotiations more and more and that's young people I'm more define young people we're not talking like 12 year olds are we like no I mean I think they would count in the sense of you know we need to yes. hear from them but actually I guess probably thinking about definitely under 30s probably looking at you know people in their 20s you know kind of really I guess listening to them and I guess they they bring a freshness and you know a kind of worldview that needs to be included and so I think that's important um and just yeah recognizing as well that many countries are majority are majority young people and so you know making sure that the majority of that population is is represented Mm -hmm. so I guess that was a win in terms of the pavilion in terms of the events and the negotiations and the text And again, that's something that will be built on. Another thing is nature. So nature-based solutions, which is actually what I'm doing my PhD on. So something I'm kind of, aside all the other things I'm passionate about, it's a kind of secret passion. And it got taken out of the agreement last year. It was like one of those last minute, didn't quite make it in. And this year it got in. So again, you know, there was small, like there was a recognition that, when we move towards a more sustainable planet, we need to be looking at a whole bunch of things, but we also need to be working with nature when we're doing it because we're in a climate crisis, we're in a biodiversity crisis. And so we need countries to be thinking about how they work with nature when they're looking at mitigation, adaptation, improvement. And so that got into the text, the words got into the text. And again, that's something that can be built on and it kind of opens the door to be having those conversations. So there was a few other kind of small wins. We also had one of the thematic days, the theme days was water that had never happened before. You know, so there's these issues that are really important that haven't quite always been on the agenda and at least the conversation is starting and we're being able to include them in a way that is holistic and is so vital when we are talking about it because moving away from fossil fuels is a huge part of this climate finance is a huge part of this but when we talk about implementation we're talking about what does it actually look like mm. so if i'm to go back to a flood prone area in scotland that we're trying to fix what do we actually do and that's the implementation bit and so having days about water discussions about water discussions about nature-based solutions having that in the text is crucial because that's actually how the implementation plays Mm. out is saying well this is the guideline of what we're supposed to do let's follow that and so those are small wins again getting that kind of text better and fuller um, just sorry to interrupt on nature-based solutions again I think that's a phrase that we go oh that sounds good what does it mean do you know like So can you give us some examples of nature-based solutions? Yeah, so it can be anything. So if you take a problem, so let's take London being extremely warm, you might think, okay, the city streets of London are baking hot in, in the summer and are reaching scorching levels. How can we avoid, you know, the kind of massive heat levels that you see there? There's this, um, it's called the 
urban heat island it's this like effect that kind of city centers have and so you know people might think okay could we put reflective surfaces on buildings could we mirror windows could we put shaded I don't know roofs on like what could be it and that would be like great infrastructure. That'd be saying, what can we build? What can we, you know, That's like in on? places like Dubai, they have air yeah. con, like pumping out into the streets, don't they? Exactly. Whereas saying, well, is there a nature-based solution to this? Is saying, let's look at nature and how can we be inspired by and worked, worked alongside um, nature? And so simple solutions like putting avenues of trees into city centres can have a massive cooling effect on the pavement, on the surrounding buildings, and so it's saying, let's look at the problem, but then look at the solution through a la- an angle of nature. And of course, that brings multiple benefits in the sense of biodiversity. And also it's much nicer to look at. And that comes across not just with the kind of heat elements, but also if you've got a flooded area, you know, someone might say, can we build some sort of tunnel, trench, drain system? But actually there's ways of saying, well, can we create a sustainable urban drainage system? Can we look at putting in a pond? Can we look at exactly like what can we put in to solve this problem but in a way that works with nature and I think the importance about this is it brings all these benefits so I mean this is what my PhD is looking at it's looking at saying you know how can we put in a solution that isn't just a climate solution but it improves biodiversity reduces air pollution increases people's well-being because they get to look at something pretty and, and go out and about and you know there's all these different benefits that can be brought around from nature-based solutions rather than just saying can I build something to avoid this problem and and, and it might not even work that well and so yeah. that's I guess this idea of when we're thinking about climate, actually we've for long enough worked against the natural environment. It's now time to look at it and say, this is how we need to work in the future. Yeah. So what was your, you said you left on, you know, last thing on Sunday night. And I think that sort of talks to what they usually do, wasn't it? It was sort of drag on and drag on and, you know, going past beyond the wire and people staying up all night and that sort of thing your sense of it when you left or having had a few days to process it what where are you at yeah I mean I think in one sense when it's over there's just a massive relief because you're like it is done everyone can go home yeah everyone can go home and and we don't need to talk about this again you know at least it's signed off so I mean there is just a relief I think I've really reflected on the host country has a big impact so the Egyptian host presidency were not as efficient as other cops. Things ran over quite a lot. There was a lot squeezed into the final days. And that was simply because they just didn't schedule things well. And, and that's obviously quite frustrating. You know, there was countries that didn't even make it to the end because they had to get their flights home. Mm. And for some countries, you know, you can't just be buying up plane tickets for everyone. So I think there was a sense of, you know, really needing the host country to to be on it with their timing. Um, and the I host country isn't just the host country for the venue, is it? No, like, this is the Egypt will now have year. it for a year and be in charge of the diplomacy that happens with the yeah. implementation of it until it's handed over next year. Exactly. And so that's, I mean, slightly worrying because obviously the two weeks was, you know, not particularly well organised, but it's still you know, it just means we need to be pushing, you know, be really aware that, you know, there's even more of a role for observers in civil society than there maybe has been previously. So I think that's a big part of it. I think my also reflections are what we spoke about right at the beginning, which is, you know, cops aren't the be all and end all. They're not necessarily the answer, but they're a huge part of it. But then thinking about how can we make them better? You know, how can we work with the process? 
I'm an absolute rebel at heart. So want to just bring down any system that's broken, but there is also a place for saying like, how do we work with it? How do we improve it? Because I don't know what the better alternative is at this stage. And I think people need to be honest and say that. Um, I'm worried that as a optimist, I'm overinflating some of the positives because I just want to overinflate because you want to have something good to say. But I think just I think I've had to do a lot of self-reflection on it's okay for something to have gone badly. Like it's okay. It's okay to come back and say, actually, it wasn't that great. And you know, we have a lot of work to do. Cause I think naturally people, you know, I want to be hopeful, I want to be optimistic, but there's also no point in, you know, lying or, or yeah, yeah, sugarcoating it. And so I think there's a bit of that as well. Um so I think it's kind of mixed feelings. I also just feel really strongly that everything that gets discussed at these COPs, it's going to be implemented from the local level. And so being rooted in your community and getting that change from the ground up is so, so vital. Because when we talk about, you know, reducing or sorry, increasing the efficiency of the housing stock in the UK, that literally starts with you and your neighbours. It act, That's literally where the change comes from. And so, so much of this is going to come from us engaging with local communities, local representatives, MPs, councillors to really say, like, here's this stuff that's been speaking about, spoken about on the world stage. What does that mean for us? Mm. What does that mean for our local park? What does that mean for the beach down the road? Like, mm. like that is my key takeaway. And I've felt really strongly about coming back and being like, I do just want to get my teeth into what does this mean for us? Like, how can we change our little community spaces and cities to make them way more sustainable to model what what we're talking about when we go to Sharmel Shake for two weeks? That's, I think that's so important because it's so easy to feel, A, really removed from this massive political process and B, like, I can't do anything about that. Yeah. Do you know, I can't... Um, you know, go and bang heads together and get people to talk to each other. And you can understand how difficult it it is to get countries to come together and to do it. And it feels an impossible process. And, you know, I often say when I'm doing carbon literacy, like we have the technology and the solutions we need for the emissions cuts we need by the end of this decade. What we're lacking is the political will and the international cooperation, like just those two little things. (laughs) Um, But actually what you're saying that it's that whole think global act local isn't it it's the like these are what they're saying needs to happen on a global scale what can I do in my house what can I do in my street what can I do how can I help my kids school to become more energy efficient you know it's it's literally coming down to that really granular nitty-gritty level and as you said that will that's what creates change and that's what also gives the politicians the mandate to go back stronger and to be able to put more money behind implementation and things like that yeah I know. And I think for me, you know, it's it's about I was at an event last night with the 2050 Climate Group up in Scotland and um, there was a speaker who was talking about this idea of, you know, when something's coming to your area that you don't agree with, that's probably the time that you are most vocal. But how many times does something come about your area and you kind of support it? You're like, oh, I think that'd be a good idea. How often do you then write to the organisers or and say, do you know, I just want to say that wind farm that you're that you're proposing do you know I think that would be a great idea and I'd really support that you know that cycle in your you know I'd I'd use that I'd take my kids to school and I would abs how often do we actually say yeah do you know that would be so amazing just want to email my support if there's anything I can do 
because it's always Never. the negatives that are the very vocal and it's often the minority it is. isn't it? especially around things like cycling lanes and things like that you get the very vocal minority but as you said maybe if the majority or even the kind of I don't really mind spoke yeah, up and said, just saying a hundred percent and so I think that was a real challenge for me which was you know we let we let the minority take over with these issues because we sort of think oh yeah I'm all right with that but don't ever like put in writing you know I just want to say I'm so supportive of the climate action that's happening and you know really want to encourage you with all you're doing you know and that can go so far and and I think we just need to do that do that more and you know I've I've really been stunned um this whole onshore wind thing that we're kind of grappling with here in the UK. This morning, I took three dogs, my family's dogs, to the biggest wind farm in the UK, which is 15 minutes from my house. And we went on a beautiful one hour walk. And I just thought, I love wind farms. Like I should be speaking out to say, you know, I've got a wind farm and I can see it. And I walk there and I love it. And it's brilliant. And it's brought so much to the community and so much to nature and so much I never do that. I never yeah. speak up enough, but I think it's because we're just content. We're happy with it. And so I think, you know, that's something I've really been, you know, I feel I've taken away is like, I need to be supportive about the stuff that's happening because it's so, so good. But also I'm so, so quiet. I'm, I, I like to moan, but I don't like to pray. <laughs> don't we <all>? so... <laughs> Exactly. I love that. Cause I was going to say to you, like, you know, what's, what's one thing or, you know, that we can do in our local that. community, but, but actually you know, and sometimes the idea of community action might feel a little bit out of our comfort zones and, you yeah. know, oh gosh, that means I've got to go to a meeting and I've got to do this. But we can all write an email about, we can all find something that we love, that we really want to support going on, or there's yeah. plans for it happening in our local community. And we can all sit there and um, bash out an email. So I really exactly. like that. Yeah. So there we go. That I feel that's honestly going to be my thing now. It's just like really wanting to encourage people to be positive about the stuff that's happening in their local area and be vocal about it and you know just really show that that these green solutions are are so so good and and support our hard working you know local representatives at times it's really easy to decisions. bash them and I'm very so guilty easy. of that yeah oh me too my goodness <laughs> But actually, you know, like sometimes it is just great to say, you know, thank you for all the hard work you're doing. And, and I think this is a really great job. And I'm really glad that the park turned out that way or you yeah. know, that that bus lane is now whatever. You know, I think that can be can be so good. Yeah. Oh, Laura, you're always so brilliant and articulate and so wonderful at explaining things to make it feel all understandable for the rest of us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Talking about saying thank you. Thank you for everything you do. For You know, you must be exhausted having spent all that time over there and then coming back. And I know you've got your PhD to get back to and all these amazing other things that you're doing. So thank you so much. No, thank you. And do you want to book in COP28 now? (laughs) I was going to say, actually, where? so where's COP28? it's in the UAE so big oil state it's going to be interesting we're going to have to push but um it'll be the end of November into December next year I think it starts on the 30th of November and I think it's going to be in Dubai but it's definitely UAE so we'll have to watch carefully for that one um when it yeah definitely if you can carve out an hour for us yes (laughs) exactly (laughs) oh you're an absolute superstar thank you so much and really good luck with your PhD thank you so much nice to speak to you again wonderful sack of loveliness with me Jen Gale 
Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small. Every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review, and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is, and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time.